It was summer of 2013, and life was pretty good. Let me grab my clicker here. I was uh, entering my last year in residency over at Kaiser in Southern California in family medicine. And I was looking forward to getting a good job, as many Kaiser residents will typically do. And I was also living with my brother and my sister at the time, which, which was a joy. It was also the summer uh, when my, my niece was born as well, and that was bringing me great joy. I was also engaged to a woman, and we were looking forward to getting married, or so I thought. So things started to go bad. Uh, for whatever reason, she, she couldn't continue on with the relationship. She couldn't see me in her life. And so that was uh, heartbreaking for me. Uh, I was confused. I was disoriented. Didn't know what way was up, which, which way was down. Uh, and it brought a degree of suffering into my life. And I was tempted at that point, you know what? God, I've been faithful to you, and this is what happens. So maybe I'm just going to turn my back on all this. But there's a voice that said, you know what, just continue, you know, continue to hold on. Trust in me. And so I did that. I said, you know, God, I'm going I'm to continue to trust in you. And I find that sometimes God's voice is clear on some days and not so clear on others. But particularly when we're suffering, his voice can be quite clear. I remember I was, on, uh, was driving back from Los Angeles to Loma Linda. And this was a few, I think a few weeks after we'd broken up. And I was going over the reasons as to, as to why we should get back together. And I was going to talk to this girl. And I was like, hey, look, look at all these reasons. This is why God thinks we should be back together. Uh, and I was rehearsing that in my mind as we were driving, as I was driving to, to Loma Linda. And I was going to spend uh, the weekend at my sister and brother's house. And as I was doing that, I was listening to a sermon by Dwight Nelson from Andrews University. And in the sermon, he had one particular message for me, but God had another. He was talking about the school year and how to expect good and, and great things from God. And as he was preaching, this verse came up. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I heard that, ver that, that verse and that scripture, and God spoke to me in that verse. And I began to wonder, God, are, are you talking to me through this verse? And as I thought about that, tears started to come to my eyes, and it was like, yes. God was saying to me through that verse, Andrew, You've been trying to make things work for months now. It's time to let it go. It's time to give it up. And so I went, I went back to Loma Linda, and I shared the news with my sister, whom I'm close with. And as we talked, we wept, and we prayed. But I knew that God was up to something. I was also setting up my... As I was setting up my electives for, for residency, I was wanting to spend some time with a physician who was interested in spiritual care, and I wanted to see how practically that was going to be incorporated into their practice. And my sister told me about a physician in northern Idaho, and he was a physician who labored sacrificially. In fact, he was on a pastor's wage. But it was not just him who labored sacrificially, but the staff that he was with also was heavily interested in ministry and laboring with him. It was enough to pique my interest, so I contacted him. And uh, sure enough, he called me. And I remember the day that he called me because uh, it was the birth of my niece. Um, and uh, he also asked me about my testimony, asked me about why I wanted to come up there. And I don't remember much beyond the conversation, but I knew that this was a man that, that cared for me, that loved me. And he prayed for me at the end, and at the end there were tears coming down my eyes. So two months later, I found myself in a state I'd never been before, northern Idaho. 
And at the airport, uh, I was picked up by a man with, uh, with a mustache and glasses and a friendly grin. Turns out, it was my attending. He personally came an hour away to pick me up. And he would then take me back to his house where he housed me and he fed me and he took me to work for two weeks. I wasn't used to this type of, this type of relationship with an attending. But I remember going back that Sunday and we sat on the carpet floor there at his house um, and we talked about med- medical ministry for hours. We just talked and talked and he basically poured out himself to me. I asked him, you know, what is it that you do for medical ministry? And his response was, well, medical ministry is not what you do to people. It's who you are in Jesus. Medical ministry is not what you do to people. It's who you are in Jesus. And he knew the stress that I was going through. He knew the difficult times of residency at medical school. And he said, uh, in order for you to be in Jesus, you're going to have to be balanced. And so we began to set up goals for the rotation. And interestingly enough, those goals were things like, I want you to spend time in prayer and Bible study and grow close to God. I want you to, to exercise. I want you to have a breakfast. Things that basically I've been neglecting in residency and medical school. <laughs> but he was wanting me to restore those things. And as I was thinking about all those things, hmm, I gotta see, I gotta have worship, I gotta, I gotta exercise, I gotta have breakfast. I was like, well, I was like, I might show up late to work if you want me to do all these things. But his response was interesting. He said this, and this is another principle. We change the practice of medicine to meet ministry goals. We change the practice of medicine to meet ministry goals. And this was very different for me because I was used to attendings who were saying, hey, you know, you got to be on time. You got to be reading up on patients. You got to know your patients. And I would be grilled and I had to know answers. Because if I didn't know the answers, I would be evaluated. And that evaluation could affect my career. This approach was different, though. This was somebody who is radically interested in my well-being. So, what was my experience like? Well, at the clinic, I had a pretty incredible time. I, I saw patients who were diabetics with blood sugars in the four or five, 400s and the 500s, and I saw how they were normalized with not just medication, but also a radical commitment to diet and a lifestyle. I saw that there were patients who were able, who were smokers, and they were able to quit smoking by calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, I even saw patients who were baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a result of the work of the clinic. And uh, this was something that was uh, incredible to me. When there was a patient that was going through struggles, this attending was not afraid to lovingly challenge somebody. In fact, I remember one of the conversations I was sitting in on, and he was talking to a smoker. And he was challenging him in a very loving but very direct way, and, 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 it, was, and it came from the heart, and I could tell. He said, You know, if your son had a truck that was barreling down on him, you would not hesitate to push him out of the way, even if it meant sacrificing your own life. And when you smoke, you're putting your child in danger because 44% of of children of parents uh, who smoke go on to smoke themselves, so you are exposing your child and your son to danger. Whoa. In my mind, I was thinking, that's... That's some pretty heavy stuff. You know, he's dealing with things that are very, very personal here. But that wasn't all. He would go on. He would say this. And if you were wise, you would pray with your son that God would give you the power to quit smoking. 
Whoa. He just challenged a patient spiritually. That was, that was something I hadn't seen before. But he wasn't finished yet. He would take it a step further. And if you were wiser still, you would ask your son to pray for you in your presence so God could give you the power over smoking because God hears the prayers of children. It was conversations like this that I was a part of, that, that I witnessed. And as I was there, it was as if there was this heaviness that was in the room. But the heaviness was actually, I think it was actually holiness. Because it was a physician that was speaking from his heart with hopes to affect the heart of the patient that was right there in front of him. While I felt patients were having a transformed experience with God, I realized that that, that that came at a price. And I noticed that that price was sacrifice. You see, this physician sacrificed in several ways. But one of the ways in which he sacrificed was this. He provided each patient with a 30-minute visit. Each patient got a 30-minute visit. That's 30 minutes, face-to-face time, uh, a physician and a patient. And that comes with certain risks, if you think about it. And one thing that it can affect is the bottom line. It can affect profits. And I saw that. I saw how sometimes pursuing ministry could affect the profits. It could affect the bottom line. In fact... There were times where this physician wondered whether or not the bills could be paid. You see, what I was seeing was, in fact, a radical sacrifice. And in this case, the thing that was being financed, that, that was being sacrificed, was his finances. He was taking his wallet and he was putting it on the altar. And that was moving to me. <clears throat> but here's the thing. His sacrifice bore fruit. It bore fruit. And I'm convinced that it bore fruit because of this principle that I'm going to share with you here. Sacrifice is the currency of ministry. Sacrifice is the currency of ministry. In Galatians we read this. I am crucified with Christ. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh... I now live by the Son of God who gave himself for me. Now here's the thing. You cannot earn God's favor or earn his power in order to do effective ministry. But I do believe this, that when you sacrifice, you actually walk in his power. You walk in his spirit. Christ lives in you. That's what happens when you walk in the ways of sacrificial love. You see, for me, I think the most radical sacrifice that this physician was committed to was, was the commitment of a pastor and a physician working together. You see, in fact, he was so committed to this principle that he put himself on a pastor's wage. That's how committed he was to this principle. And what a better way to prove to a pastor and to tell him how serious you are about working with them than putting yourself on the same financial footing as them. I remember um, that back then I, I wasn't sure how much uh, a, a pastor made, and I was, you know, curious to know, and I remember looking it up on the Internet. It's not a secret. You know, you can look it up there and... Wow, I have to say, my respect for pastors grew, Pastor Wayne. (laughs) And I wondered, could God be calling me to the same sacrifice? But here's the thing, I was about to graduate. And when doctors graduate, you get the biggest pay raise of your life. Triple, quadruple what you have been making. You've been slaving through med school, you've been slaving 
through residency, right? You've been making pennies on dollar and now you're going to live. Now you're going to make it. And I was excited about that. That's what I was looking forward to. Well, while I was in Northern Idaho doing my worship, I came across this parable. <clears throat> Found in Matthew 19. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man had heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. As I was reading that, I realized that this was a man who was faithful. This was a man who was committed. He was a young man. But when God called him to a more radical sacrifice and to a more radical calling, he could not accept it. He couldn't accept it. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but see the parallels. I was like, oh my word. This man was among the faithful, and I counted myself as among the faithful. This man was young with the potential of life in front of him. And I also had the potential in front of me. This man was a ruler with influence. And as a physician, I knew I would have potential influence. And this man was also wealthy. And as a physician, I knew the potential I had to earn money and to build wealth. But I also wondered, like this rich young ruler, was God calling me also to a deeper radical calling, a more radical calling, and a more radical sacrifice. I have to say that I felt he was doing that. I felt clearly in my heart that that is what God wanted me to do. Yes. I felt like God was telling me, yes, this is what I want you to do. This is the sacrifice I want you to make. And yes, I even want you to be on a pastor's salary. That was hard. I could not accept that. I resisted. I fought God. I had been studying all my life. I had been slaving through medical school, through college, through residency. I wanted to start living. It was a difficult call for me to accept. And I struggled and I struggled and I fought and I fought. And I remember being on just the, the, the carpet floor with my head pressed against the carpet tears rolling down my face, saying, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. But then finally, at the end of that struggle, at the end of that prayer, I came to the point and said, God, I still can't accept it. <laughs> I still can't do it. So I prayed the best thing I could pray next. And I said, God, I can't surrender this. But I surrender to you my inability to surrender. I can't surrender this, but I surrender to you my inability to surrender this. Later, I shared this experience with my mentor. And I shared with him the struggle that I had and my inability to surrender. And rather than reprimanding me, he said this. He said, Andrew, God will not put you on a path you don't want to go down yourself. If you want to do this, your heart will yearn for it. If you want to do it, your heart will yearn for it. You see, I believe that every person who is called to medical ministry should be willing to take a risk for God because of three reasons. And I think the, the first reason is this, that when you take a risk for God, it reveals 
your trust in God. It reveals your trust in God. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, our primary concern is regarding the character of God. And it's not primarily a question that is intellectual or objective, but it's actually a very subjective question. It's a very personal question. In fact, I would say that the question of whether God can be trusted is actually a clarifying one. It strips away the pretense and it gets right at the issue. Can I risk my finances for God? Can I risk my career for God? Can I risk my love life for God? Can I risk my family for God? Can I risk my future for God? When the decision to go to northern Idaho was presented to me, I had to decide what was going to be the most important thing to me. Was it obedience to God and following his call? Or was it going to be security and safety? You see, facing risk can have a clarifying effect on your own values. And it can reveal the level of trust that you have in God. The second thing I believe it does is that taking a risk for God deepens your trust in God. It actually deepens trust in your God. You see, I think God is always in the business of moving us towards a deeper, more intimate, and more trusting relationship with Him. And in fact, if you can reflect in your own life and remember a time when you came to a decision point and you had to decide, I'm either going to trust in God or I'm going to go on my own way. If you remember the times when you went your own way, something interesting happens. God lovingly brings back that same trial. So again, we are presented with the decision. Am I going to trust in God or am I going to go on my own way? But when you take the pathway to have a deeper trust in God, When you take the pathway of, have, of taking a risk for God, I believe that it deepens your trust in Him. I think for me, deepening that trust meant giving up. Giving up my relationship with my former fiancé and trusting that he had somebody else for me. I think deepening that trust for me meant taking a plunge into a state where I had no family and no friends. And I think deepening that trust meant that there was going to be a way for my student loans to be paid somehow, even if I were to take the wage of a pastor. The third reason that I think God calls us to take a risk for him is because it refines our character. It refines our character. When you take a risk for God, it brings to the surface all sorts of baggage. For instance, when faced with the risk of taking a risk for God, you may be faced with the desire to control the future. You may find yourself filled with anxiety and filled with distress. For instance, figuring out how to pay my student loans just seemed impossible. But I chose to trust God. And I think as a result, I became a person that was worried less about the future and more and better able to engage the present and be fully, fully present with the here and now and know that God was going to take care of me. I became more grounded, more grounded and more centered. I headed back to Southern California from Northern Idaho to finish my last year in residency. Uh, I can't say that I felt totally different, but I could just sense that God's Spirit was doing something in my heart. At first, I kind of felt a little bit embarrassed. People would ask me, hey, where are you thinking about working? Where are you thinking about going after residency? And uh, I would tell them, well... I'm thinking about going to Idaho. And the response was usually the person blinking twice and saying, oh, I think they have nice potatoes there. <laughs> Which is pretty much the only thing people know about Idaho, it seems. But as time went by, I think God continued to confirm that this was my calling. And I remember this because there was this time when I was with my colleague, and he was in a, in a pretty good mood. He had just landed a job with Kaiser. And he slipped uh, 
his contract to me with a grin and a smile on his face. <clears throat> and there I could see how much he was going to make his first year out of residency working at Kaiser. And I saw, wow, this is over $200,000 a year that he's going to start just starting. Now, the old Andrew, I think, would have been jealous, maybe even envious about that. Man, this is what I'm missing out on. But to my surprise, I did not experience envy. And in fact, I was at peace with it. That if God had something else for me to work on a passage wage, I would be okay with that. I knew in that moment, God was changing me. He had changed my heart. Fast forward a few months, okay? The, the clinic had prayed and felt that I was called to work there. Um, I was also praying and felt that I was called to work there. And it's, uh, it's a longer story that um, we don't quite have uh, time to go into. Uh, but I, I will say this, that I had worked hard through high school and I had earned my way into college. And I had worked hard through college and... I had earned my way into medical school, and it felt the same way then. I had, I had earned my way to get into the, the residency that I wanted. But this was different. When the call came, and when they asked me, and when they told me that we, we feel as if God is calling you to work here, it was different this time. And the only way I can describe it is it felt like a gift. Most things in my life, like college, medical school, things like that, I had to earn it. But this was the first time. It was like God had given it to me. It was a gift that he had given it to me. And I was very grateful for it. And the last two years of my life, I've definitely been very grateful for what I've experienced. I think God has a radical calling upon each of our lives. I think he's got a radical calling upon your life. Bonnie Ware, who was a palliative care nurse in Australia, she wrote an article on the top five, uh, top five regrets of the dying. And at the top of that, the most common regret of the dying was this that the person who was dying regretted that they had not lived a life that was true to themselves, but instead was living a life according to other people's expectations. They regretted not living a life true to themselves and instead living a life according to other people's expectations. I think we as Christians, we would look at that and we would say, and we'd put it this way, Am I living a life that is true to God's calling on my heart? Am I living a life that is true to God's calling on my heart? Because here's the thing. Nobody starts out in life saying, all right, I'm going to not live according to God's calling. Right? I'm going to live a life according to what other people are calling me to do rather than living a life according to what God is calling me to do. But yet the enemy is so good at this. He is so good at distracting us. He is, he is good at causing us to be caught up with the things of the world so that we lose focus on our calling. And I think the way to not get distracted by the enemy is having a clear sense of God's calling. What is that thing, that single thing, that one thing that God is calling you to do. And so I want to briefly discuss three features of knowing God's call. And the first feature is this. God's call is rooted in a relationship with Him. God's call is rooted in a relationship with Him. We're commanded to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. And I think when we do that, something happens. Our hearts, our lives are transformed. And we take on the heart of God. The things that become important to God also become important to us. And the things that break the heart of God also breaks 
our hearts. The second thing is this. God's call is rooted in your own heart. God's call is rooted in your own heart. In Psalms 37, verse 4, it says, Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And it was like my attending was telling me. If this is your calling, your heart will yearn for it. Your heart will yearn for it. Are you pursuing something that your heart actually yearns for? And number three, God's call is rooted in the suffering of your own life. God's call is rooted in the suffering of your own life. I'm fascinated by this verse in Isaiah chapter 53 that says, By his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. I look at that because it is God's suffering that was necessary for us to be healed. But in the same way, our wounds and our suffering can also mean healing to those around us, can be healing to our neighbors, can be healing to our patients. And I've seen this before where I've gone through a difficult time, a trial, a a point of suffering, and God will have that patient who is going through a similar experience of suffering and trial and bring them into my life, I believe, for the purpose of sharing that suffering and that trial with that patient and sharing them the hope that I found in God. And that somehow by sharing my suffering and trials with that patient, that there is a healing that is actually extended to that patient. So I think, as a part of calling, think about where your pain points are. Where are the, what is the suffering and the trials that you've gone through? Because somehow I think God's calling is rooted in that. Having a sense of, having a clear sense of God's calling, maintaining a clear sense of God's uh, calling, is, it's not easy. You know, we have to be intentional about this. Uh, and this uh, leads me to the concept of, of margin, which is what Dr. Neville was talking about. <clears throat> In Luke 4, we read, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. People were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I am set. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You see, this is interesting, because you know that people were probably giving Jesus a guilt trip. You know, please stay. We want to hear from you. There's, there's other people who could be so blessed here. We need you. There's people that, like, that, that need healing. And you know that they were like putting that on him. But I believe that Jesus had a clear sense of what his calling was. And nothing, not even good things in his life, could deter him. You see, even good things uh, can get in the way of God's calling. And that's why it's important to create space. And that's why I think the Bible says that Jesus actually spent time in a solitary place. You know, that's margin. That is staying focused on God's call. And you want to create margin in your life so you return to the thing that God is calling you to do. You know, I think in my story, one of the best things that my attending did for me was he created margin so I could once again hear the voice of God. He said, hey, you know what? You need to spend time in prayer and Bible study. Hear from the voice of God. He had me exercise. And as I was exercising, you know, my mind cleared up. And those worship thoughts could percolate through my brain. Without life, uh, without margin, life can get cluttered. And I want you to, uh, to think about your closet. And, you know, many of us are, here are busy pastors or Busy medical providers, right? And so when you walk into your closet or look at your closet, everything is clean and folded and there's no clutter and you use every item to its full potential, right? Probably not, right? <laughs> it's, 
It's got more clothes than you need. It's got that tie that you haven't worn in years. It's got that sweater that you try to convince yourself every time, you know, I'm going to wear that eventually. And it gets fuller and fuller and fuller. <clears throat> well, sometimes our lives can be like that closet. They really can be. And I think as especially as we're successful, there can be things that are stuffed into our lives. Even good things that can be stuffed in our lives. But pursuing more things, even good things, I think, can get in the way of God's call. That's why margin provides us with essential benefits in ministry. And I think one of the, first, one of the things that provides us is, is clarity. Margin provides clarity. It allows, it allows a space for God to speak. Because God is not going to talk in the hustle and bustle of your busy life. Rather, He's going to speak in the still, small voice. And so, are you regularly creating margin? Are you regularly creating space in your life so that you can hear from the voice of God? I think the second benefit that margin provides us is that it helps us stay focused. It helps us stay focused. You see, when people get a bigger, when, when, when people's closets get cluttered, sometimes the response is, okay, I'm going to get a bigger closet. Right? What happens with that? Well, you stuff more things into it. You stuff more clothes. And before you know it, you're going to need another bigger closet. Rather, I think the solution is you, want, you need to take things out of your closet. You need to take things out of your closet. And it's the same thing with our lives. When we create margin, we again can focus and remember, what was it here? What was the reason why I'm here again? Are there things I need to uncommit from my life? Are there events that I need to cancel? Are there things that need to change so I can maintain clarity and maintain focus on the thing that God is calling me to do? <clears throat> you may even have to take away some good things. So, Back to my story. When I moved up to northern Idaho, uh, I had no idea where I was going to stay. So I was talking to my mentor about it. I said, well, why don't you come and live with me? I said, okay. That was kind of uh, was an interesting request. I hadn't heard that from an attendant before. But I had stayed at his house for two weeks. I was like, you know, why not? I enjoyed his, his, uh, his wife and his kids. I said, you know, I know you want me to come into your house, but where am I going to stay? Last time, your daughter was away in academy, and I could stay at her, at, her, at her room, in her room, but she wasn't there this time. And where, you know, how is this going to work out? And he said, well, I want you to uh, just to come up, and we'll figure it out. <laughs> we will take care of it. He was essentially getting me to take a radical trust, uh, to, to radically trust him. So I took the 18-hour drive, wherever it is, from Southern California. And uh, I had my, my SUV packed full of stuff, pulled into the driveway. Um, he was away at work, but uh, I was there with, uh, with his wife and his four kids. And we sat at the, uh, in the living uh, room table and, uh, at the, in, in the living room, and we talked about uh, you know, how the trip was and things like that. Uh, and then afterwards, I put my hands together, and I said, okay, I think I'm taking one of you kids' rooms. Which one is it? And uh, so his wife, Sherry, got up, and she said, okay, well, why don't you come and see for yourself? So she got up, and uh, to my surprise, she wasn't going towards the room. She was actually going away from the rooms. In fact, she was going to, uh, to one of the barns, which was concerning me. I didn't want a horse as a roommate. But then she made this left turn. And, uh, and she went into the garage. And I saw this. Uh, they had spent weeks building a room for me. They had spent weeks actually building and sacrificing and building a room for me. And I actually found out that the church also, that people in the church actually had come by and had labored and sacrificed themselves so that I could have a room there 
in that garage. Uh, Doc in the box is uh, what they came up with. Uh, and it was a beautiful room. It had a bed. It had shelves. It had a window. It had, it had a desk. It had a chair. It was all said. I was so moved by this act of sacrificial love for me. Um, having graduated from residency and still single, my attention turned to what um, affects many single guys who graduate residency. Finding a wife. And I wondered, would she be among the potato fields in Idaho? <laughs> you see, I was going from Southern California to a more rural place, and uh, that made me a little bit nervous. You see, I had sacrificed my finances for God. I had sacrificed my career. Was I now willing to, to risk my love life as well? Well, God would put that question to rest soon. And uh, would I find her in Southern California? No. Would she be a country girl in Idaho? No. You know, even my mom worried about my single. She traveled all the way to the Philippines to look for somebody over there. I'm embarrassed to say. Would she be a girl in the exotic land of the Philippines? No. In fact, she was going to be a girl who lived one mile away from the house where I grew up. And she would be a girl that I went to school with for 11 years of my life in Walker Memorial Junior Academy. And actually, a woman who I'd had a friendship with uh, for over 25 years. But that friendship would soon be upgraded after God hit us both with his Cupid. And on July 24 uh, of this year, Melanie and I were married in Orlando, uh, Florida. And um, there's a picture of us on the left there, and there's a picture of us on the right of us doing a selfie after the pastor said, you may now kiss the bride. We took a selfie. I assure you that I did kiss her afterwards as well. I realize that, yes, you can also risk your love life for God. He will come through for you. At the clinic, I had, an incredible, I had incredible opportunities uh, to minister. Our clinic partnered with Your Best Pathways to Health and Leela Lewis, and we were able to take a lead role in and able to minister to 3,000 patients in the city of Spokane uh, with more than $8 million in free health care poured out into that city. I got to partner with Pastor Wayne Cablano with dinner with the doctor and also my friend and Bible worker, Josh Vasquez, and provide free clinics uh, in, those, uh, in that church and other churches as well. And so the opportunities for ministry were amazing for me. I think the best part about being in that clinic is being a part of the actual change that takes place in a patient's life and being able to cooperate with God with that. Realize that it's not just you initiating that change. You only play a part. But God's people and God himself is the one initiating the change and causing that change to happen. I think about a patient who I will call Jeff. And Jeff was an alcoholic. He was drinking 10 beers a day. And uh, he would drink um, at night, right before going to bed. He would wake up in the middle of the night with cravings for alcohol and drink. And late in the morning, when he began his day, he would drink again some more. And the alcohol was starting to have an effect on his life. It was ruining friendships. He had difficulty holding down a job. And in fact, he lost his wife over it and was divorced from her. But you see, Jeff was coming to the point where he was sick and tired of it. And he came in and says, Doc, I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of drinking. And I said to him, I was like, well, 
What are you willing to do? Because this is going to be the hardest thing of your life to actually stop this. He says, Doc, I'm willing to do anything. Anything what it takes. And you know when a patient tells you you're willing to do anything, that you can take them to the nth degree. And so, okay, I want you to be taking these medicines. I want you to be going to AA meetings every single day. And I want you to meet me here in this office. And I want you to follow up with me every single day. And so we did that. And I was there to manage him medically, as well as keep him accountable, as well as minister to him. And we had conversations. We talked about alcohol. We talked about how it can affect the frontal lobe. And how the frontal lobe is responsible for moral decision-making. How it is responsible for empathy. How it is responsible for spirituality. And maybe even hearing the voice of God. And as we talked to them, I labored with them. I said, Jeff, when do you not need moral decision-making? When do you not need to feel empathy with your wife? And when do you definitely not need to hear the voice of God? Jeff was able to stay off the alcohol over the next few days. And as he did that, things began to change. He was starting to become more alert more engaging. He even would tell me that his friends were starting to tell him, hey, Jeff, you're, you're actually nice again. And um, I was, of course, very delighted to hear this. Well, one day, Jeff came in with another woman. And she introduced herself to me. And she began to tell me uh, her life story about how she had suffered from alcohol abuse and how alcohol had ruined her life and how in fact how alcohol had ruined her relationship with Jeff. You see this woman was actually Jeff's ex-wife but since Jeff had come off the alcohol they had reconnected and I remember what Jeff was telling me he was like you know what it was as if I was falling in love with my wife all over again. You see, alcohol had ruined and broken this relationship in two, but God was putting this relationship back together. In fact, in that conversation, they told me this. He said, Doc, we want you to know something. I said, what's that? We're getting married this afternoon. And so they came back together. You see, when you take a risk for God, He will take care of your career, and when you risk for God, he will take care of your love life. I'm going to wrap things up here soon. So, what about those student loans? Well, earlier we talked about how those called to medical ministry should be willing to take a risk for God because it reveals your trust in God. It deepens your trust in him. And it refines your character. Turns out there's also a fourth reason why you can take a risk for God. And it's this. It opens up new possibilities. It opens up new possibilities. You see, sometimes, something, sometimes what has to happen is that seed has to fall, that the grain of, grain of wheat has to fall to the ground and die so that something new can live. And sometimes that's what happens when we take a risk. An act of faith can spring forth new life and new possibilities. As my mentor and I worked together, and as we talked, we, 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 we thought about what, would it would, what it would take to pay off student loans and still, and still labor on a pastor's salary. And as we were studying, we found out that there's this, this program called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness. And it's basically a program where if you pay 10 years worth of income-based repayment, low monthly payments for 10 years, that the government will actually forgive the rest of your loans. The thing that was necessary was for us to be upgraded into 
a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. And so we talked and we labored, and my mentor especially labored, and we prayed. And after a year and a half, we were able, as of this month, be able to transition into a 501c3 organization, a nonprofit organization. And so, I think for the first time, medical student graduates can, can graduate from residency and work side-by-side side with pastors on a pastor's wage and aggressively pay off their student loans. You don't have to go to necessarily to Africa to make a sacrifice for God and be a medical missionary. Now you can do that here. And we had essentially opened up that new possibility of being a medical missionary right here in the United States working side by side with pastors. When you take a risk for God, you open up new possibilities. When you risk for God, He'll take care of your career. When you take a risk for God, He'll take care of your life, of your love life. And when you take a risk for God, He'll take care of your finances. What risk is God calling you to make? What radical risk is He calling you to make? What radical action in your life would demonstrate a deeper trust in Him? I believe that all of us here are called to medical ministry. Would you be willing to take a risk for God, whatever that is? If that is your desire, I invite you to pray with me this afternoon. Father in heaven, we know that you risked everything for us. May we be willing also to risk everything for you out of a love and a desire to serve you and to love you. Make this clear in our minds, Father, as to what this should be. Create the margin in our life necessary so we can hear your voice clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.